Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, place your word within us, that by your spirit we would be renewed, that we might be drawn up and caught up in the glory of the work that you have accomplished on our behalf, that you have accomplished through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grant us to know you through this time. Grant us to be enabled to accomplish your will throughout our days. That we might draw near to you in faith always. And out of that work you are doing in us, go forth to work before you. We ask this all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So have you ever been so caught up in your work, in the work at hand, that you forget why you started with that work to begin with? Personally, I can think of lots of moments, especially in the years when I worked in grocery stores. I remember the crazy snow days, when the snow was falling, when I would willingly drive into work because I knew that others would call in because of the worsening weather. No one was surprised when people called in. They were surprised that someone would come to work despite the weather in those days. But in the midst of that pending snowfall in East Tennessee, there'd be hordes of people hurrying to the stores, buying all the groceries they could find, as though they were never going to get out of their homes again, or at least not be able to leave for a week or 10 days. Back in those days, so long ago of 1996, we still remembered that little snowstorm that came through and blanketed East Tennessee and most of the Southeast, in fact, with more than three feet of snow and shut everyone in for over a week. More for even though, for those who were in the remoter parts of the mountains. You know, that little snowstorm that we call the blizzard of 93. So back then, people still remembered the weatherman initially saying, oh, this won't be that big a deal. And then suddenly at the last minute being like, oh, my goodness, we're just, you're going to be shut in for, for weeks. And so they assumed the weatherman was wrong any time they said there was going to be snow. That it would be just a light, light bit of snow. And so they would rush to the grocery store and buy everything inside. And the baggers and the cashiers would be taxed to the max, ringing up everything and bagging groceries as quickly and politely as we could. At that time, I worked at Ingalls, this one time I'm thinking about, and the baggers didn't just offer to take your groceries out to the car. They didn't ask if you wanted help with your groceries. We just, as soon as we bagged, we'd start pushing the cart and following the customer out to the car. No ifs, ands, or buts. We took your groceries out. And it was easy, especially on those days, to get frustrated when you're helping someone that you know is like, you can do this on your own. There's so much work to be done. Why don't you just take your groceries out? But you couldn't say that to them. That would be rude. That would be uncalled for. And you take their carts out in the slushy snow, put their groceries in their car, and move on. But then, it always surprised me. You'd get to the little old ladies and the little old men, the ones that you couldn't believe would get out in snow, get out in the pouring snow and come to the store and buy groceries because they didn't want to have someone help them do that. They would insist on me staying and helping others. They would insist, be like, no, no, I, I can push it out. Don't worry about me. And it's just those moments that would bring me back into the moment of why I was there, why my work was important, 
They needed the help. They really needed the assistance. They needed the service even if they didn't want it. I wanted to help them. I wanted to take their groceries out. Those moments were the ones and are the ones that remind me that I'm there to serve others out of a good heart, to serve them out of a caring heart, to serve them out of a loving heart. Not one that hated my job, not one that despised my job, not one that was indifferent to my job, but one, a heart that wanted to help others no matter who they might be or how they might treat me. I might get caught up in my own vanity sometimes or even oftentimes, but God would always place someone along the way to bring me back to where I was supposed to be, ready to serve whoever needed serving, to bring me back to what I was supposed to be doing. It was not for me to choose who brought me back, but mine to simply receive being brought back and being sent out. And so we're called in that moment to serve out of a right heart, but we have two stories that we've heard this morning. Genesis 18, about Abraham and Sarah being visited by the Lord, and Luke 10, with Martha and Mary being visited by the Lord. And there's a grand juxtaposition between them. Two scenes that are very similar, aren't they? The Lord arriving with much hustle and bustle to serve him a grand meal. And yet, in one case, Abraham receives a blessing from the Lord. Words spoken that fulfill a long-promised coming. But then Martha receives a rebuke. What is the difference occurring in these two events? What can we see and learn from each scene? Over in Genesis 18, the Lord comes to Abraham. Abraham's just simply sitting out under an oak tree, out watching for visitors, watching for people to come, I guess. Maybe meditating, thinking on the promises of the Lord. For nearly 25 years, he'd been waiting for God to fulfill this promise of a son, this promise of an heir. And so he's sitting there, and he sees men coming, and so he jumps and greets them. He asks them if he can wash their feet, if he can bring water to them. He asked them to turn aside that they might be refreshed, and they agreed to do so. And in that, the work begins. He speaks of water and washing feet and a morsel, morsel of bread to be given. And yet he runs into the tent and he says, Sarah, quick, quick, three seas of flour. Knead it together and make bread, make cakes. Does anyone happen to know how large a sea is? A sea of flour is seven quarts. Seven quarts of flour in one sea. And he says, mix up three, three seas, 21 quarts at least of fine flour to make cakes for these three men. That's a lot of cakes that they're making. Quite the morsel of food in this moment. And then he, what is, does he do? He goes out to the field and he selects a calf and has it to be slaughtered and roasted so that it can be served. I don't know how long that would take. How long to make 21 quarts of cake out of 21, to make cakes out of 21 quarts of flour and to slaughter and roast up a calf? Lavish hospitality being poured out in this moment for strangers on the road. And yet maybe Abraham knew something. Maybe he suspected more in that moment when he met these gentlemen. Abraham had known God. He had encountered God many times before. God had showed him the stars and said that his descendants would outnumber those stars. God had walked through the sacrifice 
taking on to himself the promises and the curses to come. Maybe as soon as Abraham saw these men, he knew he had stumbled into the presence of God Almighty once more. Unexpectedly, he found himself in need to offer a great feast for the great one. But in bringing all of that, the text says, and then he stopped and stood by while they ate. He stopped and waited. And then the Lord brings to completion his word of promise. The catalyst for Abraham's journey into the land of Canaan, that promise of, I will make you a great nation, and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Way back in Genesis 12. And yet, in Genesis 15, Abraham admits that his, hasn't, this hasn't come to pass. He has not received a son. He has not received an heir. And so the Lord speaks the promise once more. Probably something like 11 years before this feast, Abraham's faith had faltered. He and Sarah had undertaken the work of the Lord themselves by having Abraham sire a child with her maidservant just to make sure he had a physical descendant. But that was not the way that God had chosen. And so after that attempt to circumvent God's promise and cause it to bring brought about to be brought about by man's power and being rejected, they wait. The torturous waiting begins. And here, finally, on this day, at this feast, the Lord speaks once more and says, In a year, in a year, Sarah will have a child. I will visit you once more. Yahweh speaks of only one more year of waiting. With much waiting and so much struggling and so much stumbling and attempts to accomplish God's promises, to accomplish God's word, to bring it to fulfillment, Sarah doubts. She chuckles to herself. She laughs. Is this really going to happen? Am I really going to finally have this child? I'm 90 years old. My husband is 100. We're both worn out and ready to die. And yet, the Lord gives her a gentle rebuke and says, Why are you laughing? Why does she laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will come and give you this child. The Lord knows why she doubts. He knows that it's been a hard, long road. He knows that they've been waiting so long. We sinners are incapable of conjuring up the faith that is necessary to receive God's promises. Sinners can't conjure it up without the total aid of God's Spirit enabling us, without God Himself coming and dwelling with us and giving us faith through His Word. With that long passage of time, it's not surprising that one would doubt. But yet, it's going to be fulfilled. God has declared it will be done. It will be accomplished. Nothing is too hard for Yahweh. Fulfillment is nigh, and when it comes, this moment will be remembered throughout their lives. This moment where Sarah laughed, where Sarah doubted. For their child will be named after that moment. Isaac, laughter. I don't think, not, not as a rebuke, not as a rebuke of Sarah, but as a continual reminder that nothing is too hard for Yahweh. Nothing is impossible for Him to accomplish. And so God fulfills His promise. Abraham serves the Lord a grand and glorious meal and he receives a blessing. 
They receive the blessing of hearing that their child is nigh. God will fulfill His promises. But then we flip over to Luke's Gospel. St. Luke gives us a very similar scene. Jesus comes into town. And He comes to stay with a woman named Martha. It's not that different of a scene. The Lord comes. A great feast is about to be accomplished. A great feast is being worked on. Though I imagine Martha may have had a little bit more time than Abraham. Jesus is known for having sent servants ahead, sent disciples ahead into the villages sometimes to let people know He was coming to seek out someone who would be hospitable. And here in this case, in this village, we know that it would be Bethany from the Gospel of St. John. For that is where Mary and Martha are from. They live in the town of Bethany, just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And so Jesus comes into town and He goes to stay with Mary, with Martha. Martha opens her home up to Him. And why is it that Martha is acknowledged as welcoming Jesus? Why not Mary or Lazarus? We don't know. It might be that she was the oldest in the family. Or maybe it was that Lazarus was traveling and she was thus left to be in charge of the household deeds. Or maybe just in general, she was always in charge of everything going on in the house. Being the homemaker, being the homebody, being the one focused on organizing everything, the itinerary that guides the house day in and day out. But regardless, no matter why, she is there. She is the one who brings Jesus in. She is the one who begins serving Him. She is the one who begins to make a great feast of sorts to celebrate His coming. But then, we hear in verse 39, And she had a sister called Martha, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching. Strange for in that culture for a woman to be sitting at a man's feet learning directly from him. A man who is not her husband. A man that she is not related to. In most cases in that culture, the, both women should have been in the back working, preparing, serving, acting as hostesses together. But here in this situation, something different is happening. I think Mary discovers something that Martha is unaware of. Something that Martha can't see in that moment. And that Jesus is coming to bring the words of life. Jesus is coming to speak grace. Jesus is coming to speak mercy to tell them of the kingdom. And there's Mary soaking it all in, taking it all in, sitting there. And so what's so different happening in this story than with Abraham? I think Luke gives us that perfect summation in verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She was distracted by all the duties at hand. She was pulled here and there, hither and thither. She is focused purely on the task at hand. She's not recognizing the reality of who is sitting in her home. Her work has become overwhelming for her, not because of the amount, but because of the focus she has lost. She has lost her focus on the true reason for what she's doing. The reason for this work is for the Lord Himself. For the Messiah has come and has blessed her home with His presence. The Lord is in her midst and she should be hearing Him. She should be recognizing what He is doing. But she doesn't because she is distracted. Her mind is on other things. Her mind is focused. Her heart is focused away from the Lord. 
caught up in the service at hand, but not in the love that she should be giving to the Lord. And so what does she do? She goes and approaches Jesus and demands that he tell Mary to get up and help. Abandon hearing the words of the Lord and get on with the serving that needs to be done. Get on with the work. The way it's phrased here in Luke's gospel, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone, she asked. She's assuming Jesus will say, yes, I do care. Mary, get up and go. It's fun how other languages can do that. They can tell you what the answer is, what the expected answer is. And the way the Greek is arranged, it is that Mary, that Martha is expecting Jesus to agree with her. But he doesn't. He gives her a gentle rebuke here. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. One thing is needful. One thing is required. One thing is good and necessary in this moment right now. Mary has chosen that good portion. And it will not be taken from her, Jesus says. And herein is that difference. Abraham saw the work and then stopped. He saw to the work. He accomplished it. He did it. And then he stopped and stood before the Lord and waited for the Lord to speak. He recognized the Lord in his coming, I think. Accomplished all these tasks and made sure that they were all done and brought it out and then stopped and waited. His work didn't distract him, but focused him on the task at hand of getting back to the Lord getting to the Lord and being in His presence. Martha, knowing who is in her midst, is consumed with the work. She ignores the Lord for the sake of her work to, be, to please Him, to be a good hostess. She's missed the point overall. She's missed the greater thing. She is missing His work for her because she's focused on her work for Him. Distracted beyond distracted, she can't understand her work before her. She's consumed with it. That is all that matters, her work, her work in that moment. Mary, though, stops and listens, stops and sits, stops and receives to hear the word, to rest in the Lord's words alone to find the Lord's love, creating the right love in her toward Him. I don't think it's an accident here in this moment that Luke places this story right after Jesus' teaching about the Good Samaritan. For the catalyst of that very story was the reality of loving God with all of your heart and then loving your neighbor. That only out of your love of God can you begin to love your neighbor. Love of God comes first in order that we could then give love to our neighbor. Without that love for God, our love for neighbor cannot exist. It will wither up and dry. Here it would seem Martha's flipped it upside down. Love of neighbor comes first. Her serving, her service, her actions, her work is all that she is focused on. That is the distraction. That is what is consuming her. She's blind to the reality of Jesus being there because she is blinded by her works, blinded by her serving, that she can't see the greater thing. She can't see His very Word that is renewing all things and making all things right in that moment. 
It's good. Her work is not bad. It's good when it's in its rightful place. It's become first and foremost to her, though. It's become all-controlling for her. This passage isn't about what is best in the sense of contemplation versus work, versus laboring, versus serving. I think sometimes in the earlier church, in the ancient church, they, they pitted those two lives against each other. Oh, that contemplation just sitting still all the time, only praying, only reading, only doing that contemplative work is good. Serving's all right, but this is always better. It's always better to not serve if you're going to contemplate. But that's not what I think is being taught here. What is being taught is the right order. Labor in its rightful place is rightful indeed. But its rightful place is in the contemplating and in the receiving by faith the labor of the Lord for us. You see, Martha's good that she intended is lost in her desire to only work. She's not in that moment living out of faith. She's not in that moment living out of the love that she is called to have, a love that would lead to right work. Her desire for work has made her anxious. It is the basis of her anxiety, something that Jesus has told us to let go of in his Sermon on the Mount. Her anxiousness eats her faith. It eats it up. It withers it up in that moment. She gets lost in it. She's taken from the one thing needful that is standing right before her. But yet, Jesus' rebuke is gentle. He chastises her gently. He points her to the better way. She's anxious and troubled, and yet unnecessarily so, for her Lord is before her. This anxiety and this trouble is not needed because she is in the presence of her Lord, and she should find rest alone in, her, in His presence. His coming is no accident. He is there to bring her more fully to Himself as He has brought her sister to Himself. That is the good portion that Mary had chosen. She is drinking and eating from the Lord, of the Lord's very words in that moment when the Lord came. Martha is taken away by the seeming necessary work, not serving out of love, but out of the anxieties, out of the troubles of that day. Her work and intentions through the trouble and sorrow become twisted and false. And that's where we find ourselves all too often, and caught up in that twisted and false understanding of our work. But then we get the gentle rebuke from God's Word. But we receive that when we stop and we listen, when we're quieted. In those moments, we're brought back from that twisting that has happened in our hearts and our minds, the twisting that makes our deeds meaningless. But the Lord's words bring life. His words bring salvation when we stop to listen and hear and take it in. His word is the word that we need. His word is, brings forth faith. It calls forth faith and trust and love. That is the one thing necessary. His word, which brings forth promises, which brings forth faith that we might receive those promises that God brings to us. And out of that faith that the word creates, our works flow. Our works flow forward out of faith. For without that faith, our works lead to nothing but trouble and sorrow, to uncertainty, to brokenness. And it is by that word of the Lord that we are saved, that we're saved from those burdens, from the hardships of our work, 
work that we think is necessary becomes unnecessary. And yet, it is joyfully flowing out of the word that he has given us. And he gives us for life and salvation. Our works aren't needed to save us. They're not needed to please God. Our works rest in the faith that pleases. And thus, our works are caught up in faith and purified in Jesus and become pleasing, yes, but they're not necessary to please God anymore. For those of us who are in Christ, who have been brought to him, we are enlivened and made right before him. Faith purifies those actions and puts them into their right place to see that they are not necessary, and yet they are called forth out of a heart that loves, out of a heart of faith. Works will flow forth. Out of a heart that has received salvation, works occur. And that is what is brought to us this day, right now, faith. Jesus himself comes to us in his word, in his sacraments. He comes and gives us himself. For Jesus is the one in whom all the deity is pleased to dwell. That was in a little bit earlier in our Colossians passage in chapter 1 there. Jesus is God himself in our midst because the fullness of deity is pleased to dwell in this human man. God is with us. God is coming to us and not us coming to God. He lifts us up and carries us to himself. He lifts us up and changes us by the word that he gives us. Whatever works we have, whatever actions we are called to, whatever deeds we do, it is all to be done in faith. It is all to be done in contemplation in recognition of the word of God, of receiving the word, of being changed by that word, letting that word flow into us and dwelling in that word, letting go of the distractions, setting aside those works and deeds, whatever it is that distracts us, whatever it is that takes us from the Lord, whatever fills our minds up and creates anxiety and worry, let that be replaced with the word of the Lord to stop and to listen to contemplate, to find that one thing needful, that one thing necessary. And that word is brought to us through our baptism. It's brought to us through Scripture. It's brought to us through this gathering and worship every week. It's brought to us through the supper of the Lord, through His giving Himself to us, through word and sacrament. Jesus gives us Himself and fulfills His promises in us. Here in our hearing this day is Jesus himself giving us his word, giving us his body, giving us his flesh and his blood, giving us the word that will give us true life. And so I say, hear him this day. May we hear him. May we receive that one thing that is necessary. For out of that hearing of him, hearing him by word and sacrament, the works before us become the work he is doing through us. They are the works that He is inspiring us to do out of faith and out of faith alone. We don't do our deeds out of sorrow. We don't do them out of fear or out of trouble, as Martha was doing. But we do it out of His Word to us. Through the Word He has given us, when we hear, faith arises and our works will follow. And that is what's happened for Martha. She hears the gentle rebuke. One thing is necessary. And what do we see when we get over to John chapter 12? To John 11 and 12 there. What happens? Martha comes out to meet Jesus and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
but I know that whatever you ask, God will do. She makes known her need and then she stops and listens and answers the Lord's questions and hears His words and turns them over in her mind. The Word of the Lord changes her and renews her and brings her into a deeper and deeper relationship just as it does for us. And that Word will guide our works and give us the works to do. And so I conclude with these simple words from Martin Luther. Only one thing is necessary, hearing God's Word and believing the same. That does it and nothing else. From this follows a happy conscience. After that, do what you can and what you want and everything else will be blessed and acceptable to God. Therefore, mark this well, that the Word of God is above all things necessary for eternal life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.